This week brings us to this weird in-between moment. Christmas is done. Trash cans are overflowing with the refuse of the season. We all may be a little plumper than the days before. I don't know about you, but my house after Christmas Day is absolute Christmas carnage. Paper and ribbons, strips everywhere, uh, empty boxes torn and lifeless. A Christmas tree no longer carried on the shoulders of all those colorful presents that used to sit beneath it, but dried out and mocking with its twinkling lights to this empty and still room. Consider the presents for a moment. In most children's lives, these gifts have become central to this idea of Christmas. There are those presents received with excitement and gratitude, and of course, those that get that half smile and are left aside on a couch or a table to be found weeks later. Socks, underwear, those pajamas that you know your friends are going to make fun of. The week between Christmas and New Year's is typically that time when those favorite presents get used the most. Watch any child playing with their Christmas toys, and you would think they were only borrowed until New Year's Day because of the amount of time spent with them in the days that directly follow Christmas. I remember this was also the time when there was this great culling. Good toys were separated from bad. <laughs> In that first week, there was always this survival of the fittest with my toys. And some didn't even make it to Christmas through Christmas Day, let alone the whole week. Much to the disappointment of my parents, the toys that didn't make the cut became part of the Christmas trash heap. What a waste. As a kid, I also remember my favorite presents uh, like losing their shine after a short time, as, as if I needed something else to satiate my appetite for a while. Even if my best toys made it through that durability testing, they would eventually become tarnished and uninteresting. Then, consider the removal of all the Christmas images. The doorbell goes quiet because package deliveries are no longer a daily occurrence. Lights come down, stockings get put away, and the tree. We always get a fresh tree, and it gets the worst treatment of all. It gets cut into pieces and dragged unceremoniously to the curb like the skeletal remains of the holiday, the holiday only to be picked up and hauled off with the other remnants of the season. Honestly, Christmas can bring a big letdown. The hopes of seeing lights in our the lights in our children's eyes as, as they open that special present that you got for them, it's done. The family gathered around a shared meal is now an empty kitchen with only stubborn messes left to be chiseled off of your Christmas bakeware. And Uncle Eddie, who had a bit too much to drink and made a fool of himself in the midst of the festivities, is now just a wine stain that requires steam cleaning off the living room carpet. All of these Christmas images vanish sooner than they came. And this year is worse. The pandemic may have kept family away, even Uncle Eddie. If you've stayed quarantined because your health or age puts you in the higher risk category, maybe you barely saw another human, let alone receive that warm Christmas hug from them. Maybe the season was financially hard due to limited employment or you couldn't celebrate the normal meal and gifts that you had planned. Whatever your circumstances, most of us arrive at this post-Christmas moment 
and we're left wondering, is the rejoicing over? Somehow, in many of our hearts, Christmas jumps on the scene for this brief moment, then screams, it's over, and we're left wanting. But this is not how it's supposed to be. You see, Christmas is not an end, but a beginning. In this series, we've walked through some gospel accounts revealing how Jesus is the great surprise, our King wrapped in flesh, stepping onto the scene and into the lives around him, especially those that are on the outside. Jesus reaches out a hand to the leper. He touches the untouchable, passing his cleanness onto the leper rather than becoming unclean himself. A woman stricken with bleeding risks it all to push her way through the crowd just to touch the fringe of Jesus' clothes in one last hope that she could be healed. And the greatest gift ever to meet the father's grief over his lost daughter was to watch Jesus softly tell her, sweetie, get up. And then he watches his beloved rise to embrace him once again. Today, we're gonna look at a different type of encounter at the end of the Gospel of Mark. This character doesn't seek out Christ. He doesn't clamor to receive anything from Jesus. He doesn't even speak to Jesus. This story is about a cultural insider, a person on the side of power who encounters Jesus. Our passage today is from the Gospel of Mark, and it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Do you recognize this moment? We arrive here after Jesus has been tried by the high priest. He's gone before Pilate. He's been scourged and humiliated before the Roman military and then led out to be crucified. He's then nailed to a wooden cross and left as this signpost for onlookers. Beware of challenging this empire. But the one who recognizes Jesus in our story, he's not like the leper. He's not like the bleeding woman. He's not a Jewish high priest. He's not a Pharisee. He's not even Jewish. He is a Gentile, an enemy, and to them, an intruder. He's a symbol reminding them that their home is a conquered land. So, why would the gospel author want us to hear this man's words? See, a centurion was a Roman military leader, and Rome was a superpower. Though nearly 1,500 miles away from Rome itself, Jerusalem, where our story takes place, is, is, and the surrounding area, and everything in between, was under the control of the Roman Empire. And the presence of soldiers, soldiers such as this centurion was proof of that fact. Like other Roman soldiers, his service to the empire wasn't complete until he died in battle or finished his term after 20 years. When Mark says that they called together the whole battalion before they scourge and mock Jesus, this centurion was probably one of about a half dozen centurions that were present. Each centurion was not only responsible for a group of about 80 or to 100 soldiers, but had earned his way there. The centurion was the most effective soldier, showing full loyalty to the empire. In fact, centurions are often referred to as the, the backbone of the Roman military. He was the example. 
Because of the centurion's courage and strength in combat, they led their men into battle, and they were often the first casualties. A centurion was also responsible for training and disciplining his men. Uh, Because of the, the importance of military force to the Roman Empire, Centurions, they were, they were known to be like this, this ruthless gang. One of the distinctives was that he carried this short vine rod that was like this, it was a symbol of his authority, but it was also used in these quick disciplinary actions. In fact, we have a term in English called decimation that is derived from a Roman military practice often enforced by a leader just like this centurion. The Latin term actually translates removal of a tenth. If insubordination, cowardice, or other gross failure take place in a military unit, a leader could enact a decimatio, where the group would choose lots, and then the loser would literally be stoned or beaten to death by the other members of his unit. This was the life of a Roman centurion. Now, if we come back to our story, who would we expect to utter these words? Truly, this man was the Son of God. The gospel author has set the scene. Just as in other stories, there is a twist, a revealing of this great surprise. With a leper, there's this idea that a righteous Jew would stay away from the the leper for fear of becoming unclean and thereby unable to participate in worship. But Jesus touches him. With a bleeding woman, it's, it's shameful, even downright vexing, that a woman would bring her uncleanness to others, pushing her way through and touching Jesus in order to try to become clean. Yet, Jesus welcomes her faith. With the daughter of Jairus, we see Jesus depart in haste to save this little girl. But he pauses to help a different daughter, such that Jairus' daughter dies. But Jesus reveals his power by raising her to life once again. This centurion is the last character that an early reader would expect to say anything like this. Unlike our our previous stories, he's not alone or isolated. He's not noticeably needy. He has purpose. He has power. But Mark wants us to know that it's the one who is deemed unclean and an enemy to the people of Israel. It is he who declares Jesus son of God. He recognizes that Jesus is the great surprise. I want you to picture the scene in in your mind here. Israel's Messiah hangs dead on a cross. And the centurion gets the, get this. The gospel says he stood facing him and saw that in this way he breathed his last. This centurion is Mark's first eyewitness. His is the first declaration. Do you feel the irony? Likely this centurion, in this centurion's pocket, in his possession, are are coins that read Divifilius, meaning son of the divine. And I can assure you that the coin does not carry the image of Jesus on it. Only a few hours earlier, the gospel describes the Roman battalion, which included this centurion mocking Jesus by dressing him in a purple robe and a crown of thorns. They would hail him mockingly, just as they might hail their own Caesar. But in the gospel, they're striking his head with a reed most likely the centurion's vine rod. It's a coronation, a dark and humiliating coronation. And now up on the cross, Jesus has been lifted up to his place and the centurion is now faced with a true king, a king on a cross. You see, Jesus doesn't come just to heal the sick and restore the outsider, but his mission also includes the enemy, 
in this case, even the one who followed through on Pilate's order. If you think back on the stories from the series, who do you identify with? Do you feel like you're an outsider? Are you sick in some way that makes you long for a cure? Do you feel God couldn't possibly love you because you've been such an enemy to him? I have to be honest, as I prepared for this message, I got thinking, as a Christian, actually no, as a Gentile Christian, that's still not quite right. As a Gentile Christian in one of the wealthiest and most powerful countries the world has ever known, I feel compelled to ask myself, am I more like the leper or am I more like the centurion? Look, I'm no warrior and I can't relate to him perfectly, but my place in life and the means God has granted me make me feel most like him, the enemy, the foreigner. But even if this is true, this text contains even greater consolation. Imagine Israel's temple on a hill. The temple was the place at the center of Israel's worship and the place where the unclean and the common were not allowed. Whole sections of scripture are defining rules associated to this. We've talked about the place at the center of the temple. It's called the Holy of Holies. It was the divine throne room, the place where heaven and earth met. It was the place where God's glory and, and presence was. Much like the cherubim, you might remember guarding the entrance back into garden in the Garden of Eden itself. There were cherubim embroidered on the curtain of the holies of holies, as if to say, death awaits the one who enters this place unworthily. So you see, in the same breath that the Gospel of Mark tells us that this enemy of the Israelites recognizes Jesus as the Son of God, the barrier that guarded the most holy place on earth, separating that which is unclean and common from God, is torn away. You see, regardless of where you are or where I am, the good news is that Jesus offers comfort in each one of these encounters and to each one of us who call him king. Whether on the inside or outside, whether you're uh, powerless or powerful, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection offers the leper, the bleeding woman, a dead young girl, and yes, yes, even an enemy from a foreign nation, access to God's direct presence. If you think about it, the centurion's declaration sounds a lot like an ending, doesn't it? If Mark's gospel were a novel, one might stop after hearing his words. But Christian brother and sister, here's the thing. From this Christmas moment right now, we march toward something. No matter how unsatisfying or abnormal this Christmas season may have been, no matter our financial circumstances or our emotional state, as we exit this Christmas of 2020, we look to the horizon and we see that the story's not over. We turn the page with delight. Easter is ahead. And the centurion's word, it's not the end, but it's the beginning.